0: How are we doing this morning? Hey, can we thank our worship team? Man, you guys are so amazing. Thank you, guys. Um, My name is Austin. I'm on staff here. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and uh, really excited to be with you this morning. Hopefully, you've had a good week. And anybody on fall break this past week? Anybody get some time off? No, I was talking to someone in the lobby. They said, I had the opposite of fall break. So maybe you just kept working and you got busy. But hopefully, above all, you were able to go to the fair. Anybody go to the fair? Yeah, come on. What a good time, man. This was my uh, first time at the Statesboro Fair, and my life has been changed dramatically because of it. I'm grateful for it. Now, uh, we're going to be in this uh, topic today on the book of Obadiah. We've been talking through some minor prophets, which is a set of 12 books in the Old Testament, And so we're on Obadiah this week. So while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Anybody grow up in a home where there were like two brothers? Maybe you were the the girl and you had two brothers. Maybe you were a boy and you had a brother. Anybody that was your kind of grown up? Good, cool. Um, That was not my experience. I grew up with three sisters. Come on, everybody say, oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. That's typically the response that I get when I tell people I grew up with three sisters. Uh, It was a lot of pink in my house and Barbies. Uh, I think I turned out okay. I don't know. Me and my dad, I guess, held down the fort for the guys. But it was actually, I was uh, pretty spoiled, I think, as the only boy. And so uh, it was a lot of fun for me. Um, but it poses a little bit of a problem because uh, I am trying to raise two boys right now. I have a five year old boy named Cade and a two year old son named Kyler. And I don't know how brothers should relate to one another. It's kind of a new new territory for me. I don't know like what is acceptable behavior for them, especially when it comes to violence toward each other. you know so if you're uh, if you've raised two sons successfully, I'd love your input. Um, but it's so interesting like. You try and ask for advice. You've got a camp of people who say, Hey, man, boys are gonna be boys. Just let them do their thing. They'll turn out fine. You know, let them rough each other up a little bit. It'll be good, you know? Then you got another camp of people who tell me, Hey, if they learn that violence is okay now, they're gonna think it's okay when they get older. So I'm like, Oh, man, I don't know which world, you know, I'm kind of living in this tension, which I guess is tension that you probably live in as a parent in general. But I remember being in middle school. Uh, and I grew up with three sisters. So I go over to my friend's house. I'm thinking of a particular family, and he had two brothers, so three boys in the home. And I just remember having somewhat of culture shock like, what is happening at this house? Because these guys are just literally like, punches being thrown at one another. Anybody, that was your experience growing up? Punches being thrown? I thought, we don't throw punches in my family. Like, if a punch gets thrown at my sister, I'm probably getting one back at me, and it's not for my sister. I'll tell you that. You know, that was... So, it was very foreign to me. And so I live in this tension now of wondering, like, what is acceptable for my sons, which I think is just true of all parents. I remember I asked uh, kind of an older gentleman who had raised, he now had adult kids, and I was just asking him about some advice. My oldest son, Cade, I love him. He's amazing, but he's very strong-willed, very stubborn, and so he's just, he's going to do like what he wants to do, you know. So I was telling this guy kind of the tension that my wife and I are living in, but, because of that. And I told him, I said, but I'm choosing to see the positive that God has made him this way for a reason. And because he's strong-willed, he's gonna be a leader. He's not gonna be easily influenced. He's gonna kind of chart his own course. And so that's what I'm choosing to believe. And he said, yeah, um, or he could be a murderer. I was like, what? So being a parent, any parents just go, man, this is tough, right? It's it's really brutal trying to figure out uh, how to raise these kids. And the story that we're stepping into, I'm, I'm very hopeful because regardless of how violent my boys are toward one another, I'm I'm very hopeful that it won't end up like the story we're stepping into this morning in Obadiah, which is basically a story of like this ancient family feud that was happening. It goes all the way back to Genesis, I think it's Genesis chapter five, um, where we meet these two brothers named Jacob and Esau. You may have heard of them. Jacob and Esau, they came from, or Abraham had Isaac, and then Isaac had these two sons named Jacob. And Esau and they were twin brothers. And uh, the scripture actually tells us that even in the womb, they were fighting one another. So that must have been terrible. But and then as, as they're being born, it says that Jacob even grasped for the heel of Esau, which is a symbol of much of what their relationship would look like the rest of their lives. And then as they go on, it kind of all culminates into these two big stories that you may be familiar with. One of them is um, Esau goes out to hunt. He's kind of a hunter and he comes back in and he's famished, the Bible tells us. And so him and Jacob work out this deal and they trade. Jacob says, if you give me your birthright, I will give you a cup of stew. And so they make this trade, which sounds radically illogical to anybody else. That sounds crazy to me, but they do that. And then there's another story of Jacob basically tricks his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing rather than Esau. Now, birthrights and blessing, these are all like ancient Hebrew terms that are not familiar to us Americans, but this is really important for them. And so it sparks this kind of rivalry between the two brothers that goes on even into adulthood for them. Uh, Jacob becomes the father of Israel, God's people. So that's a big deal. And Esau becomes the father of a little nation called Edom. And so you've got uh, the Israelites living in Jerusalem in this nation of Judah. It's kind of a, a big nation there. And then southeast of Judah is the little nation of Edom. And those are Esau's people. And in fact, the Old Testament gives us a glimpse into their relationship uh, pretty, much, pretty much throughout their whole life. They have this kind of weird kind of reconciliation moment, but it's not really. They kind of shake hands and say, are we good? Okay, but I'm not turning my back on you kind of moment. Um, The scripture tells us all these different accounts. Um, At one point, God gave instructions for the Israelites to go through Edom's territory, but Edom actually refused and instead came out with force against Israel. We find in 1st and 2nd Kings in 1 and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, uh, the struggle continues between Edom and Israel. The psalmist even records Edom's taunt of encouragement for Babylon to destroy Judah. And scripture tells us that the Edomites actually cherished the perpetual enmity against Israel. And then right around, I believe it was uh, like late, late. 500, early 600 BC, somewhere in that time period, um, Jerusalem gets invaded by Babylon and all the Israelites, all of God's people become basically captives to Babylonian culture and they begin to become indoctrinated into the Babylonian ways. And this is a, a major plot line in the Old Testament. And that happens. And Obadiah is a prophetic book essentially around what does God think that the Edomites, the people of Edom, Israel's Judah's neighbor stood by and watched, watched as Babylon took over Jerusalem and took over God's people, the Israelites. And so that's essentially what we're stepping into, into the book of Obadiah. So I wanna pick up in verse two, if you have your Bibles there, or I think it's gonna be on the screens for us, verse two in the book of Obadiah, which is only 21 verses. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. Verse two says this, behold, and this is uh, God speaking through Obadiah toward the Edomites. He says, behold, I will make you small among the nations and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Now, Edom was a mountainous range. It was about 5,000 feet above sea level. And so the Edomites would often just hide in their caves. They kind of hid away. And this gave them a false sense of protection from other nations. And so they say, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord not a good thing. Let's skip ahead to verse 10. It says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So interesting that the Edomites didn't participate in this raid or this invasion, but God says, because you stood by and just watched as it happened, you might as well have been like one of them. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, we get this kind of series of do nots, which is basically Obadiah's way of saying, you did this. He says, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. And then verse 15 is a key kind of turning point in the book of Obadiah, because Obadiah takes it now from not just judgment upon Edom for their pride, but judgment upon all nations. Let's read that. It says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, all the nations, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. And then verse 17 is some good news. It says, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble and they shall burn them and consume them they sure shall be no survivor for the house of esau for the lord has spoken and then verse 19 through 21 is essentially those are events that will happen to symbolize how god will save and restore his people so the book of obadiah is much like the rest of the minor prophets it's about god's judgment on sin and evil but it's also a book about God's restoration, about his salvation for his people. Now, when we read these, these minor prophets, it can get a little bit uh, confusing. If we're just honest, it can be kind of like, what in the world is this saying? And what does this mean? I mean, these books are full of like poetic language. They're full of dense imagery and metaphors. And so they can, can be kind of hard to understand. And when we talk about you know, nations being prideful, what makes a nation prideful? you know how do how do we judge whether whether our nation is prideful and, and and how am i complicit in our nation being prideful or what do i do to change that so we can get kind of wild in our thoughts and that's why it's important here to know that obadiah's uh, declaration of god's judgment on edom as a nation but also all nations is symbolic of god's judgment not just on them but on all of humanity not just on Edom, but on all of humanity for our pride, for our sin. It's interesting to me that if you look at the Hebrew word Edom, it's actually the same letters used to spell out the word Adam or Adam, which means human. And so God's judgment is on all of humanity because of our pride and evil ways. And if you're like me, you read that and go, well, that's not good news. I mean, that's kind of That's scary because I'm prideful and I am sinful. So God's judgment is on me. But that's where the good news of verse 17 comes into play, where it says that Mount Zion shall be the place where people escape. And Mount Zion there is the place where God's presence dwelt. Well, we know now as New Testament believers that when we give our lives to Jesus and he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell inside of us, that his presence now lives inside of us. And so that those who are in Christ are now saved from judgment because God's judgment came upon Jesus at the cross. And so the story of salvation for God's people is that we are free from God's judgment and his wrath because of Jesus' death on the cross where he took the judgment for us. And so that's actually the good news that the story of Obadiah leads us to believe. And then verse 19 through 21 is about God's rescuing and restoring his people. And so I wanna make a couple observations about God's judgment this morning, because I think most of the time when we talk about God's judgment, I mean, it sounds kind of scary. It sounds kind of like, gosh, is God mean? to his people. Um, And that is predominantly due to our Western view of judgment. And so the first point that I wanna make, if you're taking notes, maybe just write this down, is that God's judgment actually guides me to truth. God's judgment guides me to truth. We don't don't like the word judge, do we? We don't like the word judgmental. In fact, you don't wanna be a judgmental person, right? And you don't wanna be around judgmental kind of people. In fact, I hear all the time, like Christians should be the least judgy people in the world, right? To which I would agree if by that we mean that Christians should not assign value or worth to people based on their outward appearance or based on their ethnic background or where they fall out, fall at on a tax bracket or, you know, even their actions or their decisions. But we believe as Christians that. Every human being has dignity and immense value because they were created in the image of God. So that is a Christian worldview, but let's be honest, judgment, I mean, that's a judgment is a good thing. You guys use judgment all the time. You made a judgment decision to come to church this morning, didn't you? You're gonna make judgment decisions on how to spend your money. In fact, scripture even says to use proper judgment when judging. And you probably teach your kids to use good judgment, right? Use good judgment about the people they surround themselves with. Use good judgment about the situations that they go into, whether this is a good situation or not, right? Because when we judge something, we're essentially declaring a truth. Or we're declaring that this is true or this is a lie. We're declaring this is good or this is bad or this will lead me to good or this will lead me to bad. So judgment is a declaration of truth or of what is good and evil. Um, This week I had probably the highlight of my week was a really cool opportunity that I got to go and talk to a group of high school guys who are part of uh, FCA at their school, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so one of our schools here in Statesboro, I got to go talk with them. It wasn't very long, it was just 20 minutes or so. But as I spoke with them, I just kind of had this thought of, you know, let me pick apart kind of a popular cultural mantra that's in um, kind of the air that we breathe, honestly, today. And so I just started asking some questions around this saying that we often hear, which is something along the lines of, um, well, live your truth, or you do you. Or you may have heard something like, uh, follow your heart. Just follow your heart. What's your heart telling you to do, you know? Which is essentially saying, whatever you feel like is right, go for it. If it feels right to you, then go for it. So just asking these young men, you know, what do you guys think of that? First of all, is that something that rings a bell to you? Do you hear that? And for you parents in the room, they all said yes. So even if that's not familiar to you, just know that's familiar to your kids. And then we just started picking it apart. And eventually I got to talking about desire because if we're honest, a statement like follow your heart, like how do I determine where is my heart leading me? My heart is a mixed bag. It is a mixed bag of desires. I'm all over the place with my desires. I desire, I want to be, you know, financially responsible and, and save money and give generously out of my money and, and be responsible in that way. Um, I also desire a new car, like a new car, <laughs> and I desire new things. And the two don't go together sometimes. So my desires all are all over the place. I'm imagining that yours are too. I use the example, and it's kind of funny, but you know, I was standing in a grocery store checkout line, and on my left is this magazine rack. And on this magazine rack, there is a men's health magazine. You ever seen these? A men's health magazine, and there's a picture on the front of this guy there with his shirt off, and he is just absolutely shredded. You know, That means muscular, for those of you. Um, he just, he's just jacked, you know? And it's, you know, top six ways to get the abs of your dreams or whatever. And I'm like, gosh, that, that is what I desire. I mean, that is what I want. You know, I want to look like that. And not, not just for looks. I mean, I, I want to just be healthy. And I want to be physically active with my boys and, and live a long life, you know. But that, that is the desire of my heart is to be like that. And then you got this side of the aisle. You know where I'm going with this, right? There's another rack on this side of the aisle that is filled with powdered donuts, right? With Snickers and candy and energy drinks and soda. And I'm sitting here looking at these like, that is what I desire. I mean, that is where my heart is taking me, you know? And I'm sitting here with both of these desires in my heart. My heart is a mixed bag of desires. Is yours? I'm guessing yours is too, right? So I just asked these young men, I mean, how do we, how do we know which desire? to follow, to which they said, well, I guess you gotta follow which one you think is right. I said, great answer, good answer. Another question though, how do you know which one is right? How do you know? To which they said, well, it kinda depends on, you know, hopefully your parents or whoever raised you, raised you to know right from wrong, right? I said, great answer, good. But that kind of poses a little bit of a question because I mean, we're all standing here in Statesboro, Georgia. We all probably kind of have a similar like moral ethical background of raised to know what is right and wrong here. But let's say I just pick you guys up and I plant you in New York City or I plant you in Portland, Oregon to where you are now not the majority as a Christian, you are now the minority as a Christian. And what you believe to be right is pretty different than the person on your left and the person on your right and what they believe to be true and good. And so, how do you know? And I said, let's be honest too. Like, your parents are old. I mean, they're out of touch. They don't really know how the world works in 2021. And they don't have Snapchat, you know? They don't know what it's like to be 15 years old in 2021. That's all sarcasm, by the way. I, I corrected it, I just... So if, are they really the right people to guide you to what's right and to what's wrong? So we kind of concluded that maybe the best solution is that we all just follow what we think is right and what we think is true, which that is the world that you and I live in. The moment that we remove a transcendent truth that exists outside of how you and I feel, is the moment we're all left to just follow what we believe to be truth. And you can kind of imagine where that takes us as a society. And this is not new to the world. I mean, this isn't new to 2021. This, we could take this all the way back to the very beginning, to the very beginning in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter three, you've got Adam and Eve there in the garden. And Eve is approached, the, the serpent, or literally the Satan, slithers up to her. And what does he say? He says, did God really say not to eat the fruit? I mean, come on. God, Does God really know what's best? I mean, that's not really what he meant. And scripture tells us that Eve responds with this. that The scripture says that when Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, that was a judgment call. And when she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, that was a judgment call. She ate it. And so she usurps God's authority and then takes it upon herself to decide what is true. And you now we've all been living in the disaster since then, right? We could take it to Jesus. When Jesus, just hours before he's crucified on the cross, he's standing on trial before Pilate. And he says these words. He says that I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate responds with this iconic line that we've been asking this question and trying to answer ever since then. Pilate says, what is truth? I can take you all the way to uh, Shakespeare. Anybody literature fans in here? I didn't think so. Um, Shakespeare, so Shakespeare wrote this play called Hamlet, right, and in Hamlet, there's this character called Polonius, And Polonius at one point says these words, he says, above all else to thine own self be true. Which is interesting that Polonius would later be given the moniker of the fool. And so it is the fool who tells us to be true to ourselves. Now, I wanna talk a little bit about history. If you're a history kind of buff in the room or a psychologist or sociologist, I don't know much, but I'm trying to learn. Um, So give me a lot of grace here. But for centuries, most people in the West thought about desire through the lens of a fourth century philosopher and theologian by the name of St. Augustine. Now, it should be noted, this is not St. Augustine. That's a place you go to to work on your tan. This is St. Augustine, right? That wasn't funny? I thought that would be funny. It wasn't. Um, Now, according to Augustine, the basic problem of the human condition is that of what he called disordered desires or disordered loves. In his view, human beings were created in love and for love. And our problem isn't that we don't love. Our problem is that we love the wrong things or that we love the right things, but in the wrong order. So for example, uh, the problem is not that you love your job. That's a great thing. You should love a career, love a job. Um, The problem is if you love your job more than your kids, right? The problem isn't that you love your kids. That's a great thing. We should all love our kids, love our families. But it kind of presents a problem if you love your kids and your family more than your love for God himself. The problem is disordered loves, disordered desires. And he even claimed that authority structures were put on this earth like parents, like church. Some would even say government was put to help, uh, help guide our desires. And so this was like the predominant way that Western culture operated for centuries. And then a guy by the name of Sigmund Freud came on the scene. Now, Sigmund Freud, he was a, he's a psychologist, a neurobiologist. He did a lot of work in psychoanalysis and how the brain works. And most people say he was incredibly brilliant. But even today, most psychologists, secular and non-secular, say that he got a lot of things wrong. And mainly around this idea of desire. Although he was brilliant, for Freud, uh, he said that our desire, our primary desire that we are led by is our libido, our desire for pleasure our desire for happiness. And so that was the thing that drove human beings and it was a thing that should drive human beings is what in the world makes you happy. And if it makes you happy, go for it. And perhaps the most dangerous part of that is he said that if any external structure, any external authority oppresses or represses your desire and what makes you happy, then it should be thrown off and done away with for good. And thus, we have a redefinition of freedom. That freedom in today's world, and much of what I talked about with these guys, that freedom in today's world means that you are free to do whatever you want to do. Do not tell me that I can't do what I want to do, and don't tell me that what makes me happy, I can't do that. But this is radically different than how Jesus and the writers of the New Testament would define freedom. See, for Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, they would say that freedom meant that you were actually free from the control of your desires, that you did not have to be a slave to your desires, or as the writers of the New Testament would call your flesh. You don't have to be a slave to your flesh and where it's leading you, but rather you can be surrendered to the spirit of God and allow him to lead you. So Austin, what does this have to do with anything? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. Here's why it's important. This one statement, the truth that you believe determines the life that you live. The truth you believe determines the life that you live. So if you believe the dominant secular worldview that human beings are just animals, simply aided by time and chance to evolve into the dominant species on our planet, and therefore the greatest purpose in your life is to find happiness, then you will live into that quote-unquote truth. If you believe that the best way to enjoy life is through having lots of money so that you can live extravagantly and safely, then you will live into that quote-unquote truth. But what if? What if Jesus was onto something? What if Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life? I mean, this is a radical statement, a radical claim about truth and what it means about human condition and what it means about God's salvation. What it means about eternal life and heaven, but not just that. I love what John Ortberg says. He says that salvation is not just about getting you into heaven, but it is about getting heaven into you. And so the claim that he is truth. And he also says this. He says that um, anyone who is my disciple will obey my teachings, and then they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. And so he equates truth with his teaching. And so following Jesus is this belief about eternal life and the truth that exists there and how the song that we sang about the blood of Jesus and how it covers my sin. But it is also a truth about the way of Jesus and his teachings being the way to life and life to the full. And that's why it's important. What if Jesus knew what he was talking about? And all this to say that God's judgment reveals his truth. So anytime God judges a sin, so he judges pride, for example, in the Edomites, he says, your pride has deceived you. And because of your pride, you've become violent to your neighbor. If God judges that, then that is like a flashing red light at me going, stay away from pride. That God's truth, his way to life and life to the full is the opposite of pride. Rather, it is a life pervaded by self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Number two, second point I want to give you this morning about judgment is this, that God's judgment brings hope for healing. It brings hope for healing and you know, I don't know that this is just kind of jumping off the pages at us, once again, because of our kind of Western view of judgment. But with God's judgment, remember the book of Obadiah is the story about God's judgment on sin, but also how he saves his people and he restores them. And so God's judgment is a good thing. It brings healing. Now, remember, you and I are living in, a, in the kingdom of God that is now, but it is also not yet. It has come, it is here, it is now, but it is also not yet. Meaning this, that one day Jesus will return and will begin to establish his kingdom for good. And when that happens, God's judgment and his justice will come upon this earth. And that is something that you and I should long for because with that, all evil is now removed for good. All sin, all sadness, all tears, all evil is removed from this earth. So whether it is you know, the actions of a group like ISIS, whether it is uh, child abuse, whether it's sex trafficking, whether it's the greatest genocide the world has ever seen and the killing of unborn babies, whatever evil it is it will now be done for good. And that is God's justice. And that is because he is good to us. You and I want to live in that world where God's judgment is a reality. But hear me, what I think is possibly even more phenomenal than that is that his kingdom is not just coming then, but it is come now. That it was inaugurated at the birth, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that when he came, he came and it started to establish his kingdom. If you read the New Testament, he's always walking around. Jesus is going, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is near. That was one of the predominant messages that he was spreading. So this means that you and I are responsible Have the opportunity to live into his kingdom by living into his truth and expanding his kingdom. Every time that you do this, every time that you live into his truth, every time that you live guided by the spirit and not by the flesh, then you expand his kingdom. This is great news. His kingdom was expanded this past week as people from our church went to share the gospel with those in the villages of Dominican Republic. It was expanded then. It was expanded this week as you prayed for your waitress at the restaurant. It was expanded this week when you decided at work that work was gonna be a part of how you glorified God and that you were gonna worship Him in everything that you did, including your work. It was expanded this week when, as a stay at home mom, you decided. That you're not just changing diapers and cleaning up toys, but rather you're a part of raising kids who love and honor God with their lives. And you get to unfold their potential day by day to become all that God has created them to be. God's kingdom is being established and expanded here and now through you and me. And one of the primary ways that he is doing this is by forming us into people who are not prideful like the Edomites but who are the opposite, who are pervaded by a self-giving, self-sacrificing love for others. I recently officiated a wedding, which I love to do, but um, in my charge to the couple, I said this, I said, you are entering into a covenant marriage, which will require a selfless love. I mean, maybe the, maybe the relationship in your life that will require you to be selfless unlike any other relationship. And many people think that the opposite of love is hate, but it's not. The opposite of love is pride because it is your pride that turns your marriage and your life into becoming all about you. And it turns your spouse into becoming a person who exists to meet your needs and to make you happy. It is your pride that undoes your marriage and other relationships. It's our pride. And this is what fascinates me about the New Testament book of Galatians, but especially Galatians chapter five. So if you have your Bibles, turn into Galatians chapter five. I just wanna highlight a few verses there and then we'll begin to wrap up this morning. Galatians chapter five in verse 13, Paul makes some uh, He kind of compares and contrasts some things that are fascinating to me. He says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let me just highlight that for us. So he says, The flesh is one thing, but the opposite of the flesh is loving and serving one another. Now, this is crazy to me because I tend to think of when I'm in my flesh, you know, I'm guided by my temptations and my desires and all these kinds of things. But Paul says when you're in your flesh, you don't love and serve one another. That the flesh drives you to the opposite, which is pride. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. And then check out this last line. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. In other words, to follow your heart. The desires of the spirit guide you not to do what you want to do, but rather the opposite, that you would follow what he wants to do and what he's doing in you and through you, which typically is always pointed toward others. How would God use me in others' lives? And so my flesh and the spirit of God working at me In me. And it sounds a lot like what the Edomites did. You know, they were uh, completely kind of in bondage to their flesh, which led them to this position of pride. They boasted in their lofty dwelling. They believed that no one could bring them down. They felt secure apart from God. And this fostered a spirit of pride in them. And it was the pride of their heart that deceived them into thinking that they were self sufficient and invincible. Listen closely. Their pride removed their love for others. And oh, how it does the same in me. It makes me all about me. It continually causes me to cherish myself more than others. I get so wrapped up in my agenda, my thing, what I want to do, what I think is best. I become blind to the needs of others, and even worse, I become complacent to the suffering of others. And meanwhile, the story of the Edomites and the writings of Paul in Galatians scream at me, Austin, don't be guided by your flesh, but rather be guided by the Spirit who leads you away from pride and toward a self-giving, self-sacrificing love for others. Now, as far as I can tell, the end goal of my spiritual formation, your spiritual formation on this journey of becoming Christ-like is that we become people of love, people who both love God and love others. And what separates a Christian love from all other forms of love is really this word in the Greek, it's agape. You may be familiar with that. There's different kinds of love in Scripture. But this agape kind of love is Christ's love for us. It's the love that would be willing to lay down his life for another. It's a love that would be willing to put the benefit of others in front of myself and what I want. I love this definition of love. I think it goes all the way back to a guy by the name of Aquinas centuries ago who wrote this definition, he said, to love is to will the good of another, even at the expense of yourself. To will the good of another, even at the expense of yourself. And this is what it means to love in the way of Jesus. This was the model that he modeled for us. It is one thing to love others, but it is a whole other thing to love when it costs you something when it actually ends up costing you something. I hesitate to use this example because it's, it's just kind of cheesy and, and loving people is you know, far greater than just buying someone a cup of coffee. But a couple weeks ago, I was uh, on my way to church and decided to stop by Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. And so I was in the drive-through and all I need is just a quick, I need an Americano. It's a espresso and water, pretty simple. Um, that's all I need. It's like two bucks, not a big deal. I'm going through the drive thru, order my Americano. I drive up to the window, and the girl at the window says, Hey, the person in front of you paid for your coffee. I'm like, Oh, amen. Praise Jesus. What a good day this is going to be, you know, already. And then I kind of have that moment. What do I do? You ever been in this situation? I look in my rearview mirror. There's somebody behind me. Dang it. And um, I look in, I kind of make a few observations. Okay, it's one girl looks to be in her 20s. That's judgment, I know. But like, that's okay. She probably wants a Frappuccino, right? That's probably what she ordered. Another judgment call, but that's it. Um, So I'm like, what is a Frappuccino? It's like five bucks. All this is happening in like five seconds in my mind. It's like $5. Okay, it's a little bit more than what I was planning on, but maybe I'll swing it. So I look at the girl in the window. I'm like, hey, I am going to love like Jesus today. I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I just said, you know what? Um, I'm going to, what is it called? Pay it pay it backwards or pay it forward or something like that. I said, I'm going to pay for the girl behind me as well. I'm on my way to church. I'm a pastor. Just trying to do the right thing here. I didn't say that either. But um, she goes, oh, okay, that's great. Her order is $17. I said, $17? What does she buy coffee for her whole church? Like, come on. It's so, like, ah, oh, geez. And, and so now my budget's in my mind. I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to do? I guess I just won't eat the rest of the week. Not really. i just take my card, swipe it before I change my mind, you know? And so I just give it to her and pay for it, you know? And uh, I know that's, that's kind of cheesy, and that's not quite loving someone. That's just a little act of kindness, maybe. But I think it's a good example of, you know, it's easy for me to pay for someone's coffee. It's another thing when that coffee is like 10 times the amount that I thought it was going to be, you know? What about you? Like, what about, what does love require of you? Especially when it costs you something. What about when loving that coworker means that she gets the promotion, not you? What about when loving your neighbor means you sacrifice a night of watching the football game so that you can have them over for dinner? What about when loving the poor means you sacrifice a portion of your income to give in an intentional way that helps? What about when loving Jesus and his way means that you operate the finances of your business in an ethical way and it ends up costing you higher profit margins? You see, it's different when love costs you something. And yet the invitation to be guided by the spirit is to be guided into a self-giving, self-sacrificial love for others and away from a prideful heart, which just makes life all about me, what I get out of it, my plans. And so the invitation this morning is that you would live into the truth of God and you would take up your role in bringing about the reality of his kingdom coming here on earth And you would do so through a self-giving, self-sacrificial love for others. However he would call you to do that this week, my prayer is that you would be sensitive to the Spirit and how he's guiding you. And that we would be a people opposite of the Edomites who are guided by pride. And That we would be a people guided by the Spirit leading us to a love for others. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, in a, in a sense, this feels easy. It's just, okay, go out and love people. But Lord, it is so much deeper and greater than that. Especially when it causes us to sacrifice. And yet that is what you are leading us into. And that is what perhaps will make the biggest difference in people's lives as they look at what is it that makes a Christian stand out? What is it that is so compelling about those who follow Jesus. May it be that we will the good of another, even at the expense of ourselves. And so, Spirit of God, would you lead us in how to navigate that? Would you lead us in our marriages, in our families, as we stay sensitive to you and how you would guide us to love the people that we care about, even at the expense of ourselves? And Father, would you make us a church, a community of people who are willing to sacrifice and give so that we are formed into people of love and that we ultimately bring glory back to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.